This show is produced by the Hartman Media Company. For more information and links to all our great podcasts, visit HartmanMedia.com. Welcome to the Solomon Success Show, where we explore the timeless wisdom of King Solomon and the Bible as it relates to business and investing. False prophets and get-rich-quick schemes are everywhere. Let's not be distracted by these. Instead, let's go to the source, the eternal principles that create a life of peace, power, and prosperity. Here's our host, Jason Hartman. I'm your co-host, Elizabeth Embry, and today I have our co-host, Jason Hartman. Jason, welcome. Thank you, Elizabeth. How's everybody doing out there? You know, I think it's been uh, about 30 episodes since we last spoke. So wow. it's it's a Time fun flies. One. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And you just got back from a whirlwind European vacation. Yeah, I don't know how much vacation it was. It felt like I was pretty connected <laughs> and working a lot. Uh, so I would say it was a trip. <laughs> I don't know if it was a vac- total vacation, but yeah, it was a little bit of vacation. I mean, I guess certainly as much as I have at home, because you know, you're not always working when you're at home either. But that was my second trip to Europe this year. So uh, this year, I spent seven weeks in Europe. And uh, Boy, I uh, I just kind of want to experience it a little more because I think it's falling apart. Their economies are just falling apart uh, in in Europe. It's it's amazing, but you know they've got huge demographic problems, immigration problems, economic problems. Uh, yeah, they're uh, like know, the so. U.S. amplified in many ways. It seems. Yeah, that's I guess that's a good way to look at it. I mean, it's a whole different set of circumstances, of course. But you know, Eastern and Western are very different. I was in both this time and and last time. But, you know, as we were talking about before we started recording for this, it's really valuable, I think, to travel just as for a human, you know, just for life to understand and gain perspective on the world. I've always said that before someone should be allowed to hold public office, they should be required to travel the world and own a business, <laughs> you know, have a broad perspective and support people and have the obligation to actually make payroll every two weeks. Good experience for politicians, right? <laughs> but uh, I think that travel just gives you such a neat perspective. Now, one of the things that you were talking about is like all of the troubles that you've been seeing and all of the, I'm assuming some fun stuff too. How has that impacted your thoughts around as an entrepreneur, as a business person? How are those things impacting your thinking? Well, when you say troubles, what do you mean? Oh, well, for instance, you were talking about the immigration challenges, the population challenges, the economic challenges that you're seeing in in Europe. You know, one thing is for sure, and I guess the most prescient lesson for it is Japan. If a country doesn't have a birth rate, it basically becomes extinct. I mean, the environmentalists have this saying they always say, talk about when they refer to species extinction, they say extinction is forever. Extinction is forever. And that's true of people and countries too. (laughs) So, you know, when you look at Japan and, and they used to call it the lost decade, and now we can call it the lost two decades, actually entering the lost third decade, it's not necessarily an economic problem per se that Japan has, what it really has is a demographic problem. And when you don't have when you don't have young people coming in to support the old people, that makes society lopsided. And the reason the US has escaped that, because the birth rate among the 
what you'd call not really natives, because nobody's really much of a native except American Indians in the U.S., but the sort of native U.S. people for the last 200 years, right, or 100, um, is those people aren't having many children. But the U.S. has taken on a lot of immigration. So that's the way the U.S. has kind of escaped that problem, because the immigrants are paying into the system. And even, you know, and then, of course, the U.S. has the reserve currency of the world and all kinds of advantages that other countries don't have. It can print money <laughs> until the end of time and, and, and not be really held accountable for it like other countries have to be. And so, you know, but that is one way that the U.S. has escaped some of the problems that, say, Japan is facing. And other countries, to look at this example, are, are Russia and in 10 years, China. I mean, China, Elizabeth, because their one-child policy is going to, they don't have it yet, it hasn't hit them yet, but the thing with demographics is you you can absolutely positively know what's going to happen. You know in 10 years, everybody will be 10 years older. There's no question about that, right? That and and, uh, and so it's a really sort of easy thing to project, right? As some, some other things are very hard to project. Right, and then but, when you've got these patterns of places like Japan where you've seen, you know, how their culture and how their, their birth rate and their demographics have have played out over time, you can see that established pattern and then see those other countries starting to follow that. Oh, no, no question. Yeah. And, and if you don't have those young people working to support the old people as they retire and, and live too long in retirement, I mean, when Social Security was invented, the average lifespan was like four years after retirement. Now it's 30. Okay, so you can see there's a problem there, right? <laughs> we have another show that you're all too familiar with called The Longevity and Biohacking Show, another podcast. And there are just huge, wide-ranging issues here that affect societies all over the world because people are just living so much longer. And not only are they living longer, but they're living healthier. I mean, why the heck should we have 65 as this sort of retirement age, if you will. I mean, retirement, well, I propose that retirement is not good for people. You could retire, I could retire. I have zero interest in retiring because as soon as you retire, you're probably going to die pretty soon. Well, you know, I mean, you know, that's have something that people life. ask me often. They're like, Elizabeth, why don't you just kick back at this point? You know, your real estate wealth has helped you enough that it covers yeah. so much. Why don't nah. you just go find an island and kick back? Yeah. And I'm thinking, well, I just don't want to. That doesn't sound like much fun, honestly. No, you got to be stimulated and engaged in life. And it's not really about the money. It's about doing cool things and creating. I mean, and contributing. Yeah, and contributing. You know, I mean, you hosting your show, for example, Elizabeth is is one of your forms of art. Okay, it's it's art. It's just like Steven Spielberg making a movie or George Lucas or whatever. It's art. Also for me, I mean, it's an opportunity to give back to the young women and men that are becoming entrepreneurs. They're growing their careers. They're just starting to think about their wealth strategy and starting to build that foundation. I mean, being able to give them that one-stop shop of not just my knowledge, not just your knowledge, and your knowledge is extensive. I mean, you've been doing this for a number of years, you know a thing or two. But the fact that we're pulling in all these amazing speakers with their perspectives as well, it's it's really a great opportunity to to really contribute and help others grow to become, you know, successful as well. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Couldn't agree more. So when you're having these conversations, you're going into, sorry, when you're going into these different locations, you're starting to be able to strike up conversations with the people that are around you. You're getting these fresh perspectives too. And that's one of the things I love about traveling because then I'm learning about things or I'm hearing about an existing, you know, a challenge, an idea, whatever, but from somebody's completely different impression, a different way of training, a different way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, no question about it. I mean, that's just a really important thing to gain perspectives and just look at the way things are done and look at the sort of gadgets people use and they're just the, these whole different ways of thinking. That's what, you know, I always say, Elizabeth, I have this morbid fascination with communism. I would really love to go to North Korea, <laughs> oh, God, no. uh, but I'm too scared. That's why I don't go. Yeah, please um, don't. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm not going. Uh, but um, I've been to Cuba, and I've been to uh, pretty much everywhere in the Eastern Bloc, and I've been to Russia. It's really quite fascinating to see how how people think, you know, in the in these places. It's really just eye opening. It really is. Absolutely. So speaking of perspectives, you know, I've been, as you know, uh, historically really focused on residential. I don't know that much about commercial real estate, and I had an opportunity to meet uh, with this local group here in Seattle, this local group of women badasses. I mean, these women are just like really at the top of their game. They work in some of the largest commercial real estate companies in the U.S. here in the Seattle area. I know on one of your recent shows in Creating Wealth, you talked about where all the cranes are going. And, you know, that's a a foreshadowing of not only the work that's here today, but all of the ability all the places that people could rent or live in the future, but that it, it can get to a tipping point. It can become a bubble. Now, here in Seattle, I've seen a 10-year cycle in residential and in commercial, you know, that's been like clockwork. And so for me, it felt very frothy. The perspective of these women who are very knowledgeable, very experienced, was that, no, we're just going to right, blow right past that 10-year dip because there's so much business coming in the area. There's so much demand coming. And I was really surprised and I'd love to get your thoughts because for me, I've got these tried and true indicators when I'm looking at a market. And from their perspective, they were like, nope, this time it's different. Okay, right. And and by the way, Elizabeth, I'm so glad you said those words because those are the famous last words of every investor who who eats it. This time it's different. Be very careful with that kind of thinking. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> they always say, I mean, from back to the days of tulip mania, okay, a couple hundred years ago, they always say, this time it's different. So those words are very dangerous words. <laughs> but just want to make sure the listeners and I understand what your argument is, is that there's a business cycle, right? Is that what you mean when you talk about 10 years? Yeah. So in Seattle, um, you know, I was working at Washington Mutual on the IT side, but for home loans. Um, I've lived here since 89. And every 10 years, like clockwork, we get this massive constriction of the of the residential market. And then all of a sudden, there's something that happens and you can't give away a house. You know, for instance, my residence fluctuated literally 100% over the last 10 years. I always see this, this cycle of, you know, it's a very cyclical market. Everybody's flush with cash and re- real estate is very tight. And then all of a sudden, 
you know, real estate is very prevalent. You can buy a house for really inexpensive. Everything goes 30, 40% below its high. And then it starts coming back out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, okay. So let's examine that. So why has that happened? Because, you know, part of the business cycles, there's this concept of as the economy starts to take off, people start feeling more comfortable. There's a wealth effect. They have more cash in their pocket. They have more equity in their house. Their business is doing well. Their job is doing well. You know, maybe they're getting a raise or they're climbing the corporate ladder. You know, businesses are expanding and they're opening a new location or putting in new infrastructure and technology. And that has a multiplier effect because it creates jobs. So all of this starts to happen, right? They they stock up on, in, they increase their inventories. And, you know, there's all these uh, trailing effects in the economy from all of this spending, right? Mm-hmm. And then it goes too far. And then they wonder, well, now I've got all this infrastructure. I've got these new locations. I've got more inventory. I've got more systems. I can handle more business. And where are all the customers? We overbuilt, <laughs> you know. And uh, and and that happens in the real estate market. It happens in virtually everything. I right? remember so, in the eighties in Dallas, they just overbuilt so much that I think it was a. I don't know, it was like a half a decade before they started filling all of those different commercial buildings. You know, I think it yeah, was... those are the see-through buildings. Okay, right. so, so they had those in Dallas and Houston. They've had them all over. And what that means is, you know, there's no tenants inside those beautiful glass office buildings. You can see right through them, right? Right. And so, yeah, that, that certainly happens. The only thing I would say is, and you've heard me talk extensively, uh, I know you probably plug your ears and don't want to hear it, about Trump, our <laughs> child president, Donald Trump, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Our our president who thinks he's Blair on Gossip Girl or he's still running a reality show. (laughs) I don't know which. But (laughs) love him or hate him, okay? And, uh, you know, I I love him a little more than hate him, even though, I mean, I just think he's like a kook, uh, okay, in in a bit of a way. But I'll tell you something. Regardless of what you think of him, he is loosening the floodgates of money, okay? Mm. And in real estate, there's this thing that we've talked about extensively before, and I've talked about very extensively on my show, called Dodd-Frank, right? And this was a very poorly written 2,200-page bill. And it has really constricted the real estate market. And Trump wants to repeal or at least soften Dodd-Frank. And as that happens, more money will flow. And as lending requirements are loosened, more money will flow into the market. So that's one thing to know, okay? The other thing to know is that when you look at these like the business cycle, and the business cycle is a legitimate thing, okay? It it certainly has happened throughout history. But remember, we came off a very low, low So the question is, is it fair to argue that during the Great Recession, the worst economy we had in seven decades, is it fair to say that, well, the cycle started in 2000 and, well, really, we we don't want to say 2007, that would be 10 years, but say it started in 2008 or nine, right? So nine or 10 years, it's been going, right? You could argue. Mm -hmm. And, uh, or even 2010, so seven years, it's been going. The economy's been on an upward trend since then. And and so it's time for a recession, right? That would be the thinking. But I would kind of caution against that thinking a little bit, only because 
we really didn't get to sort of par until maybe 2012. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we've only really been in the boom for five years, I would argue. Fair right? enough. It's like yeah. whether you're trending up or trending down. I just remember. So I view Seattle's health by the traffic on the street. And what I mean by that is in 2000, when we had the tech crash, the tech bubble, you could get anywhere in 15 minutes. Now the same distance takes you an hour and a half, right? So when people aren't working, that's when there's no traffic. When people are working, it takes you forever. And we've had these very consistent, almost by, like clockwork, these these outside catalysts that force the cycle, but it magically happens in this 10-year cycle where, you know, for instance, Boeing was the largest employer in the area. And, you know, in the late 80s, it started laying off people. Then there was the tech bubble. Then there was, you know, the recession. There was, you know, there was just all of these things that very consistently happen. And so I think it's fair to say it's like, where are you actually at in that cycle? Mm -hmm. But it still feels very frothy to me. Yeah, well, okay, so now that we kind of addressed that part of the general business cycle concept, now I think it would be fair to look at specific real estate markets. And then, of course, we got to do our usual thing, and you've talked about this a lot to your listeners, the three basic types of real estate markets around the world, doesn't matter where you are, okay, it's all the same. Linear, cyclical, and hybrid markets, okay? Those are the three basic types of real estate markets. A linear market is one of these boring markets. You don't hear about it on the news. It chugs along. It does its thing. That's what we like. We like those linear, very reliable markets. The cyclical market is Seattle, LA, virtually all of the West Coast, the expensive Northeastern markets, South Florida, Paris, Hong Kong, Dubai, uh, you know, London, all of these all the sort of trophy, all these trophy places around the world are cyclical markets. And cyclical markets have big, glorious highs and really ugly lows. Okay, They're, they are a roller coaster ride. And then there's the hybrid market, which is the sort of in between. Hybrids would be Austin, Texas, Phoenix, Denver, places like that. Atlanta. Okay. Yeah, Atlanta is now a hybrid, but before it was pretty linear. But yeah, now I would call it a hybrid. You're right. So in the cyclical markets, we are way past the point of fundamentals. Like nothing makes sense in Los Angeles or Seattle. You know, these markets are, they're very overvalued. But, but here's the thing. The question is, like, just because I said they're overvalued and we're past the point of fundamentals, and I know, Elizabeth, you'd agree with that, just because we said that, and it's true, doesn't mean they're going to crash tomorrow, okay? Well, that's (laughs) a fair point, Jason. That is a fair point. Yeah. Nobody knows. The question is, how long can it go on? And nobody really knows the answer to that. Because, you know, even though the market is massively overvalued today, if Dodd-Frank gets repealed and, um, you know, a bunch more money flows into the real estate market, hey, it's going to keep going. We're kicking the can down the road. Okay. So one of the things that I think that Trump has been really clear on is his frustration with our existing trade agreements like NAFTA and immigration in just in general. Now, in a lot of the coastal markets, we've got a lot of 
Russian and Chinese investors really snapping up real estate left and right. So let me ask you this, knowing that we're in an inventory shortage, do you actually think it's a good thing if they start getting blocked from buying? Or do you think it's a bad thing because now the prices for the existing real estate are going to start dipping? I think they distort the market, okay? That kind of foreign investment distorts markets. It's illogical because a lot of those so-called investors, and I wouldn't call them investors at all, are very wealthy people from overseas that are literally just parking money because their countries are so corrupt and so unreliable that, you know, America, I mean, has great rule of law, okay? You know, we can complain all day about, you know, how the court systems are a mess and everybody sues each other here and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, that's all true, but compared to what? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> compared to what? Well, that you know, is the question, I mean, right? I mean, America has fantastic rule of law. Investors from around the world always, they call America the Brinks truck, because it is a a safe place to store your money. So a lot of these foreign investors in all the places you mentioned are literally, I mean, they're buying stupid things, right? A lot of them buy high-rise condos that make zero sense, and they they just leave them vacant. Right, they just, just, like you said, they're parking their money. They're, They're just literally parking money, and it's better than putting it in their own country. You know, a lot of times it's a diversification strategy. It's a safety strategy. It's they don't trust their own government. They don't trust their banking system. I mean, it's I was talking to someone. It's norm too. Yeah. I was talking to a Ukrainian girl when I was in Prague just a few weeks ago. And she said the Ukrainian banks, the joke is that if you put your money in the bank in Ukraine, will you ever get it back? <laughs> like, you know, that's that's basically what we're dealing I mean, the stuff we take for granted Other people do not take this for granted, okay? And I know that even just in their day-to-day habits, like you're you're mentioning, in Russia, it's common for you to put your pay voucher into an ATM, you pull all the money out, and then you put the money back in, and you pay your utility bill, you pay your water bill, you pay your cell phone bill, you even buy travel through a kiosk, the same kiosk. This kiosk functions as like a a transfer station because nobody wants to leave any money with the bank. They don't even want to leave it in there for a second. You know what's going to be really interesting? I mean, I always say it's an amazing time to be alive. And what's going to be really interesting, and we're starting to see an inkling of it now, and I think it's super exciting, although I don't know what it really means yet. It's too early to tell. T-E-T-T, too early to tell, is the innovation in the banking world and payment systems. Systems. Certainly, there have been the cryptocurrencies, which, by the way, I wouldn't risk too much on that because I think that that'll be squashed. But there's all kinds of like peer-to-peer models that are rising up and, and just different interesting things in the world of banking. You know, so much of the world is unbanked that I, I think this is going to – I think it's going to be really good. Yeah, I think that the fact that the, your phone, the mobile currency systems, your phone actually works like a wallet – And we have very little like Apple Pay or Android Pay in businesses as a norm. So, for instance, I think there's here locally, there's Chevron stations that'll take Apple Pay and Home Depot. (laughs) Those are the only things, right? But I think Walgreens will take it. Walgreens. Okay, Okay, good. So there's three stores, you know, you can get gas. I think Trader Joe's takes Apple Pay too. Oh, does it? Okay. So you can get an apple. You can uh, buy a hammer and uh, (laughs) and get some aspirin. Yeah. Yeah. But 
but you know it does seem like we really got to get off the uh, the concepts of you know the standard wallet and I know we've talked about this a number of times but the fact that the US dollar it's anybody's guess where inflation is really mm-hmm. and so the value that's perceived versus the value that it is it'll be interesting to see where it goes especially since it seems like things are going faster the changes are taking place faster these days Absolutely, they are. Hey, Elizabeth, you know what? I'm glad you mentioned inflation because I talk about that a lot on my Creating Wealth show. But um, I want to just talk about that for a moment, if we can, with your listeners. And of course, the government manipulates and lies about the true inflation rate. And there are two main reasons for the government to want to do that. Number one is that all of these government um, employees, their pay and all the entitlement programs, disability, social security, et cetera, they're all indexed to inflation. So the lower they state the inflation rate to be, the less the government has to pay. That's one reason. The other reason is because just generally, you know, if you want to keep the populace happy, you've got to mislead them into thinking things are better than they are, okay? So the ways that the government mainly manipulates the inflation rate is with substitution, uh, hedonics, and weighting, okay? And when you look at an index like the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, they'll substitute things. So if the price of beef goes up, they'll just substitute it for chicken, and they'll say everybody will just eat chicken instead of beef, and, you know, everything, there's no inflation, okay? And when technology gets better and you buy a new laptop computer, and that computer is twice as good as the last one you owned, but it costs the same price, they'll say you only paid half the price for it when you really paid the whole price for it because they'll say it's twice as good, which is an absurd idea because hedonic adjustments basically say that we as people aren't entitled to progress. The progress goes to the inflation index rather than to us. Yeah, which is (laughs) just not fair. That's ridiculous. Could you imagine, Elizabeth, them hedonically indexing everything in the world since the time the wheel was invented? (laughs) So the wheel made things so much better than, you know, horses are walking on foot before we had the wheel. So we should just hedonically adjust everything because a thousand times better will assume it only costs a thousand times less. And then weighting just how much they weight each item in the index, right? Mm-hmm. But there's another hidden thing here. And Elizabeth, you've been there like when we were in Seattle at the, our Venture Alliance retreat that you and your husband, Neil, helped us host up there. You remember our Venture Alliance member, Jeff, and he was just so funny and he he was having a couple of drinks and he was just ranting about inflation, right? Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> and saying there's just not really hardly any inflation, blah, blah, blah. But I beg to differ because when you look around the world now and live your life, you got to notice that even though the price of something may not have changed that much, number one, it got smaller and lesser. So the bag of chips weighs less than it did, okay? And there's all kinds of ways that they're cheating us there. The chocolate bar is not as big as it was, et cetera, et cetera. But the big one is this. You ready? It's self-service. We are doing so much stuff ourselves nowadays. When we go online and buy an airline ticket, no one's helping us do that anymore. It's all self-service. Right. I mean, we've been pumping our own gas for decades now. 
do you remember? I when I was a kid, we used to have full serve and self serve, and the guy would check they still all do in Oregon, stuff. in Oregon, but they also have income, to, you know, state income tax and all sorts of taxation to cover for that, and the and it's indi- indicated in the price as well. But you're right. I mean, I <laughs> I've been trying to sell some property. Oh yeah, with roof stock, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That, that hasn't. That they hasn't, suck. Well, yeah. it hasn't gone as well as I'd hope. But you know, the the shtick is, you know, you're going to have less of a fee because you're going to be you're going to be doing a certain amount of self service. It's going to be easy, right? And I'll tell you, the amount of effort I put into that, I really wish that they would have just charged me the full price, you know, yeah. in order to right. index your time into the inflation index with all of the stuff you do yourself nowadays. And then you'll really know the inflation rate. There's been a lot more inflation than you think. I mean, all day long, I'm just doing everything myself. Right. The automation. No one is helping me anymore. You got to call and wait on hold forever when you call any company. And then you're talking to, you know, some drone in the Philippines who's reading a script. I mean, it's super annoying. The thing that gets me is I can't handle the self-service checkout line. I will actually wait in line for a teller one because I don't want all the jobs to go away. I actually want the tellers to or the checkout people to still be there. <laughs> Because <laughs> I actually like service, and yeah. to be able to well, have you're fighting. A, you're fighting a valiant fight for the uh, working class hero against a trend. You will not win. I know. Okay. I Automation know. will win. You'll but just prolong it a little it, bit. It frustrates me to no end. I don't know how to bag. I don't want to know how to bag. I want somebody to just run the stuff through, bag it for me, maybe even take it to my car, like back in the day. Oh you my know? God, nobody does that anymore, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah no, it's, it's a different world. Self-service, folks, you're doing a lot of stuff yourself nowadays, yeah. and that is part of the inflation rate. It's deceiving. But think about how your life was 30 years ago, and you didn't do all this stuff yourself. You had a travel agent. You had a concierge person that would get you tickets for events. You know, all kinds of stuff is self-serve nowadays. You know what drives me nuts is these, and I call me terrible. Okay, maybe I'm a terrible person. But I was at New York. I, I had to stay one night in JFK on the way back. And I was at the hotel. And I go down to breakfast to have the you know, $19 breakfast. Okay. And yeah. the crappy $19 breakfast in the hotel. I was like, and that's a cup of coffee and a Danish maybe. Well, no, there were some crappy scrambled eggs too, but the so-called waiter, all he did is put the check on my table. He never said, do you want any coffee or water? I had to get up, get my own coffee, my own water, everything self-serve completely. And there's a space for tip. And you know what I wrote in? I wrote, self-service and no tip. Yeah. I didn't write no tip, but I just wrote self-service. Like, why should I leave a tip? He didn't do anything except put the check on my table. And now I know I'm going to hear from people saying, you're terrible. (laughs) Look at all these restaurants now that are like these modern restaurants where you go up to the counter and you place your order at a restaurant and they turn the little screen around like the little iPad cash register. And the tip is either 15% or no, it's 18%, 20%, 25% or 30%. For what? I, this is self-service. <laughs> <laughs> but, and, and the reason why people are going to say, Jason, you're a meanie, is because they're saying that guy has to, or that person has to survive off their tips. Because we've already created this situation where 
they're, we're already saying provide the absolute minimal amount of service because we're going to try to automate everything. And so that person, that, that ratio of, you know, waiter to restaurant attendee, so to speak, you know, person at the restaurant is probably one to 30. So he doesn't even have the bandwidth to provide any decent type of service, let alone did he not get any training. But his employer is probably put in a wage that doesn't even allow for him to have a living wage unless he got a bunch of tips. Right. I, I, I hear the liberal coming out. Oh. Yes, I no, I don't disagree with you. I just think that people have got to stop viewing these minimum wage jobs as careers. That's they they were enough. never meant to be careers. When I was a kid, you would work at McDonald's when you were in high school. And then you would actually get a real job eventually, right? You know, but now we've got this whole class of the working poor. And I admit it's really sad, but the solution is not the Bernie Sanders $15 minimum wage solution because that's just going to create more inflation and more automation and less jobs. What it, the solution is that you've got to stop looking at these things as careers. You should not work at Taco Bell or Starbucks for any more than a year, <laughs> okay, when you're like a kid. <laughs> That, that's what it's for. Yeah. They're, they're not careers. So I'm going to shift gears on you because uh, one of the listeners uh, I was talking with the other day asked me a question and I didn't have a good answer for her. And I know you know the answer to this, which is she missed. If the... I don't know the answer, I'll make it up. Okay, good. So she, <laughs> she, unfortunately, she was behind on listening to the podcast. So she missed the ability to go to the Oklahoma City property tour. And she was totally bummed about that because she was really excited about being able to actually go and see the properties. And she asked, so when's the next property tour? When's the next event? And so um, when's the next property tour? When's the, when's the next event, Jason? Well, the next event that we actually have on the calendar is our big one, our big annual event, Meet the Masters of Income Property in January in the San Diego area. And uh, people can find out about that at jasonhartman.com. And that's a big three-day conference, and it'll be awesome. And we've got some terrific early bird pricing. Tickets are selling like hotcakes for that event now. But we will probably do a smaller event in the fall sometime, which will maybe be a buying event or a property tour or something and uh you know look for that around october sometime okay terrific well jason thanks for making the time and amongst all your whirlwind travel it was good to catch up and uh have a great day it's always great talking to you elizabeth thank you and um happy investing thank you so much for listening be sure to check out hartmanmedia.com for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service, remember that guest opinions are their own. And if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode.